The referendum has been held. The letter has triggered Article 50, uh, Britain's decision to leave, and the process is underway. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It is not in our interests to see the Republic of Ireland do anything other than prosper. We cannot agree to do this unless we firm guarantees that there will not be a hard border in Ireland. Hello, and welcome to Paddy Wants to Know Brexit, the podcast where us Irish guys try and figure out what the hell is going on with Brexit. Uh, I'm joined once again by my co-host Jack. Say hello. How are you doing? So, Jack, um, not an awful lot happened in the last couple of weeks, has it? No, I, I, I think the opposite. I think this is actually the week, and in, in fact the two-week period, where Brexit actually got real, um, and the rubber started to hit the road, and... We're starting to see, you know, when Theresa May said Brexit means Brexit, we're beginning to see actually what it could mean. What exactly it means. So, I mean, there was a number of different issues that arose last week, but we're going to focus on two of them in the first half of the show. Um, those are the EU published their draft legal text of what the phase one of negotiations would look like. Um which uh, a lot of the British people did not like. And then in the second half, we are going to look at um, Theresa May's speech, which she gave uh, last Friday, which received mixed response across Europe and in the UK. So, Jack, just to kick us off, we're going to have a quick chat about this legal text. Um, I was just wondering, is it all much to do about nothing? Is this not just what, you know, was agreed at Christmas? Um, it depends who you ask is, is, the, is the first thing to say about it. But we're, we're going to go through what was said in December, how it's turned out now, you know, if the proof is, is in the pudding. But actually, I think it's it's more helpful to skip to the reaction rather yeah. than the actual event itself. So we're going to hear from someone who uh, didn't agree with the text put forward by um, the EU's uh, Brexit negotiator, Michel Barnier. So uh, let's have a listen. He has put forward uh, an EU draft text, uh, which not only we find unacceptable, uh, the British government finds it unacceptable, the Labour Party finds it unacceptable. So there will be a need to uh, negotiate from that. That is his interpretation. We don't think it's a fair interpretation of the joint report from December, uh, and therefore work needs to be done on this now. We're entering into a negotiation around these issues, and we wanted him to understand why we felt so strongly about the draft EU legal text as it currently stands. So that was Arlene Foster speaking after she and um, fellow DUP members uh, Sammy Wilson, Diane Dodds and Nigel Dodds met with uh, Michelle Barney in Brussels. Her objections are worth actually exploring here. So we're going to... Certainly, yes. Certainly going to rustle up the paper here. <laughs> um, Walk us through them, Jack. Educate us. The, the issue comes round Article 49 in the December agreement. In the absence of agreed solutions, the United Kingdom will maintain full alignment with those rules of the internal market and the customs union, which now or in the future support north-south cooperation, the all-island economy and the protection of the 1998 agreement. That's what they said in December. Yeah. And it's probably also important to note that this was the third option. Right. This was in worst case scenario, no deal being struck, which, you know, avid listeners will know we discussed in our first podcast. Yeah. And, and I suppose in terms of it being the third option, another way of looking at it is the stick to, you know, the carrot of the UK side um, proposing solutions that are acceptable to the EU side. So bearing in mind what we've just heard the December agreement said, so that was mm-hmm. 
So in the absence of agreed solutions, the United Kingdom will maintain full alignment with those rules of the internal market and the customs union, which now or in the future support North-South cooperation, the all-island economy and the protection of the 1998 agreement. So that's December. This is the draft uh, withdrawal agreement before it. And suddenly, and I suppose this is probably where the rubber's hitting the road, the realism's hitting. Um, yeah, when you put them into legal text. Yeah, and like it is actually slightly different. So I'll just read Article 3 mm-hmm. of Chapter 3 uh, for those intent on reading the actual document yeah, itself. We do it so you don't have to. Um, so this is establishment of a common regulatory area. A common regulatory area comprising the Union, that's the European Union, and the United Kingdom in respect of Northern Ireland is hereby established. So that's slightly different in respect of Northern Ireland, spe- like I suppose singling out Northern Ireland. Yes, as separate to the full alignment with the United Kingdom in the December agreement. So I think that's possibly where some of the confusion has arisen or some of the, I suppose, anger that we heard in the earlier clip. So to go back to the text, the common regulatory area shall constitute an area without internal borders in which the free movement of goods is ensured and north-south cooperation protected in accordance with this chapter. So, I mean, that's a it's an all-island economy. Hallelujah. <laughs> So why are they so annoyed? Are are the DUP scared that they're going to drift away from the UK, from the rest of the UK, basically? Is that that a pretty quick synopsis of it? Is that why they're so annoyed? I mean, essentially what this does is it puts the border in the Irish Sea. Yes. um, Which is something that's been talked about, but I guess this is it in black and white text. Yes. Um, And that's exactly what the DUP are fearing. It's also worth noting that Theresa May in the House of Commons says that no... British Prime Minister would ever accept this. Yeah. Uh, two things to that. One, you're right. Two, she already in theory agreed to it in December in so many words. So it strikes me as, you know, qu- quite intriguing that they're now getting annoyed about it. But it's also worth bearing in mind that as far as I can ascertain or understand, the UK government hasn't published their own draft proposals of what this legal text would look like. Well, so uh, this is the EU proposal. As luck would have it, um, I've looked back to August, um, where they put forward a, a kind of customs, I suppose, notion rather than a proposal might, might be a fair way of putting it, because it's what they're referring Irish to people now. People love notions, absolutely. <laughs> um, but it's it's what it's what they seem to be referring to now, and I suppose this is what also Boris Johnson was referring to with his talk of trusted traders, um, as well, and it, and it's idea that you. You could have tracking devices. This is the technological option. solutions, quote unquote. Yeah, these have been around since last August, and they've been pretty much dismissed on the EU side. So, but not only have they been dismissed out of hand, it's also worth bearing in mind that there's a difference between publishing a policy paper, which is you know a va- in general terms a vague set of outlines of aspirations of where you would like to go, which came out last August, as Jack has very adroitly pointed out, vis- versus you know, hard legal language on the third option, as we've discussed. There's two other options which are, in theory, better. Uh, the third option. Well, we there. haven't we haven't seen the other two options. Yeah. So this is this is the stick to this is the stick to beat them with. So you know what we continually see and is a running theme is the the British propose something in vague aspirational terms. The EU comes back and goes, okay, here's some legal language or here's some proposed text uh, in, in terms of political agreements. The British go mad or the, the, the unionists 
you know, go mad and maybe perfectly so. But it, it strikes me that we don't, we never see kind of hard proposals from the British government. And that is, you know, in essence, because they can't, the, the Tories in particular, don't have their own house in order on this issue. So j- just, just to put the counter narrative out here and what yeah. the DUP have argued and the figure that they will return to is that 72% of all goods leaving Belfast port are destined for Great Britain. This is a quote from um, Arlene Foster. We trade more with the rest of the United Kingdom than anywhere else, even combined. Placing a border down the Irish Sea would not just be politically unacceptable, but would be economically catastrophic. So I suppose in terms of what this EU draft says, that big question of how you get east-west trade, which is really the big the big one. Yeah, for Northern Ireland. And also the south as yeah. well. And that's left, I suppose, I mean, that's that's the phase two talks, but that's not dealt with in this particular solution, the backstop option, option C, that is outlined and is, yeah. as we've heard has yeah. caused such outrage among... Among uh, conservatives and unionists. So I think we'll, we'll take a quick break there. Mm-hmm. And uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about Theresa May's speech. When we leave the European Union, we won't have to impose any border. Uh, The problem here is that uh, the British government's stated position uh, in December and still now is that they want to ensure that there is no border uh, infrastructure between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland, that there is no barriers to trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, and that the United Kingdom is leaving the customs union and single market. Those three things are simply not compatible. Those three things are simply not compatible. But if we do, that's what the European Union wants, and we go along with it. The losers will be the Republic of Ireland. The economy of the Republic of Ireland would be in very bad shape. Welcome back. We've heard about Barnier's um, published document there. Um, Theresa May was also busy. Why was this speech important, Brian? Well... (laughs) So, so a, a bit of context for our listeners: the, the UK government set out, um, you know, a, a number of weeks ago, uh, that a number of different government ministers, from Foreign Affairs Minister uh, Boris Johnson, David Davis, the Brexit Secretary, uh, and Theresa May, amongst others, would be giving a number of speeches on what the future relationship with the EU would look like, and this would spell out a bit more detail um, that the EU is crying out for that the British public. Um, even those who are in favour of Brexit would like to see. So Theresa Mays was uh, uh, one of the last of these. Broadly speaking, it was well received. Certainly within the UK, it was received with mixed criticisms uh, in the EU. Um, It didn't really say a huge amount new. It should have been something that, a speech that was given 18 months ago. It it set out a number of broad principles uh, that would judge the success of Brexit, which I think are worth reading out. Um, Number one, it must respect the referendum result. It must be a lasting accord, i.e. they're not going to go back and renegotiate it every five, six, seven years. Um, it must protect jobs and security. It must be consistent with the type of country we, uh, the UK, want to be as they leave. A modern, open, outward-looking, tolerant European democracy. And fifth, it must strengthen the union uh, of our nations and our people. I would say these five points are great. 18 months ago, just after the referendum. It's um, a, it, it does also seem a kind of case of sort of the American motherhood and apple pie, isn't it? I mean, who's yeah, going to be certainly. against these particular... Yeah. I, and I suppose those are fine. 
uh, there was a couple of points uh, or wrinkles in the speech that kind of struck me. One was, uh, as far as I'm aware, it was the first time Theresa May admitted or said in public that leaving the single market meant the UK would not have the same kind of access, the same benefits of being in the single market as being outside of it. Now, to our listeners, to myself and Jack, that might seem like an incredibly obvious thing to say, but that has not been the narrative, that has not been the debate um, within the Conservative Party and within British politics for the last 18 months. So so that's quite a big change then. Um, And I suppose in terms of respecting the Brexit vote, that seems to be quite a moving target. Are you saying that's the big change in the speech? There was that realism, certainly, um, which I think is to be welcomed. Um, there was also an interesting point where she said she wanted associate membership with all of these European agencies. So again, there's, I mean, something like 20, 30, 40 different European agencies that regulate a whole host of different areas. Um, all of these rules help underpin the single market and help the EU kind of function and flow as it does. Uh, however, Theresa May said she wanted associate membership or a very close relationship with a number of very, you know, probably the more important agencies, which A, could be welcomed, but B, very much sounds like cherry picking, um, which the EU have said they will not allow. Um, but an interesting counterpoint to that from Theresa May um which she's correct in saying, actually, is that all trade deals that the EU has struck, whether it's with Japan, Canada, uh, anybody else, are by their very nature cherry-picking. That's not incorrect. It's not not, not wrong. Yeah, so it, it's also worth noting the deal that one could see from what Theresa May's speech made on Friday would potentially be um, the Swiss deal with the EU, which is something like 130, 140 bilateral agreements on every issue conceivable under the sun. Um, the EU have said hell will freeze over before they'll ever consider doing that again. It's a very difficult thing uh, to to look after, basically. On the whole, I think the speech is get is getting there. The British are getting there. And I think, I mean, in, in terms of the Swiss option, and, and you've talked about how, was it 130? Is that what you said? Something along those lines. I mean, it's it's a lot. Um, it's also going to take time. And I mean, we talked about the transition period being max two years. So, I mean, I actually thought Simon Coveney's uh, take on it was actually quite interesting. So we'll, we'll just have a quick listen to what he had to say. Negotiations like this take time. Uh, a normal free trade agreement with the EU can sometimes take, you know, four to seven years to actually negotiate. So there's a lot of work to do, which is why the EU side and why the Irish government have been continuing to say, look, the clock is ticking here. We really need to have a framework agreement in place by about October so that the European Parliament can can then go through its approval process. And of course, the British Parliament will have to look at it as well. So I think we have seen some more detail from the British Prime Minister in her speech on Friday, but there's a long way to go yet. Yes, I think that's a pretty good synopsis of the general reaction is like yeah, to be to be welcomed, but lots done, lots more to do. So, I mean, that that was our own uh, foreign minister Simon Coveney's um, reaction. What was the reaction in Brussels? The reaction in Brussels varied from uh, in individual to individual, and country to country, and diplomat to diplomat. I think, broadly speaking, the realistic tone and tenor of the speech um, was welcomed. Um, there was a couple of people, I think it was Manfred Weber, who's, I think, Angela Merkel's EU or Brexit spokesperson, 
said it created. He's the uh, head of the EPP. EPP. You're right, Political Jack. You're party right. grouping. Yeah. Um, in the European Parliament, I stand corrected. And potentially a rival um, should the Italian current president of the Parliament take the call and return home to Italy. A rival to our very own Raid McGuinness for what would become a vacant presidency at the European Parliament. Yeah. European insider gossip aside, <laughs> although very welcome, it basically said that the created as many problems um, as it solved. I think that's probably a good place to take a break. Um, yep. So after the break, we'll be talking to um, someone who may actually be affected by Brexit. People often okay. talk about, you know, the UK and the EU and what we're negotiating. What lies underneath this is people and their futures. Brexit has so many consequences. Brexit is not first and not only about uh, London or Brussels or uh, high-level negotiation. Brexit is about also the daily life of all these people. This ain't a movie, no. No fairy tale conclusion, y'all. It's more confusing every day. Well, confusing, uh, hopefully we'll, we'll make it less confusing. Um, we've kind of done the London and Brussels sort of back and forth, but Brian, we're, we're going to talk to one of, I suppose, these ordinary people. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing ordinary about Ursula. Uh, Ursula's an Irish language activist who uh, used to work for Conor na Gaelga. Uh, she's now recently set up and is running her own Irish language consultancy and training organisation named Kinnacht. She's from... Deepest darkest South Armagh, and she's uh, worked in the Northern Irish Assembly at other points in her career. And um, I'm delighted to welcome Ursula on the line. Thanks very much, Brent. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. Um, Not at all. So, Ursula, kind of pushing into that with <coughs> Brexit and Northern Ireland, kind of as an Irish language Irish language activist, someone from South Armagh, you know, do you feel that your identity has been more under attack? since the results of the Brexit referendum and what may well, you know, occur that you know, we're, we're more than likely, in my opinion, um, to see the imposition of some border um, between North and South? Well, I suppose in terms of the Irish language, if you wanted to start with that, um, my identity as an Irish language speaker and, and what that means and whether or not that feels under attack or undermined, that predates Brexit by a long way. Um, so uh, because the European institutions, the EU, don't really have that much of a role in the the, the struggles that we're having at the moment with the language legislation because um, their minority legislation for the languages is, is Brussels-centric, really. Um, I don't really feel that Brexit has had an impact, per se, on the Irish language community's feeling of isolation and disenfranchisement. Um, but I suppose just as an Irish person here, I suppose it's... Um, it's been interesting in a lot of ways and that, you know, the discussion um, around whether or not there could be a border or a hard border or a soft border or whatever it could be, the discussion took on, I think, a very interesting turn in um, how strong the Dublin government has been in these negotiations mm. and surprisingly strong, I would say, um, not, not to try and run anybody down there, but I, I would say that I've actually been very surprised and quite impressed by how strong the Dublin government has been um, in suggesting that, uh, when Leo Bradford came out last December and suggested that nationalists in the North would not be forgotten again by a uh, Republic government. Now, that, that was very strong. It was very um, refreshing to hear and quite reassuring. And I think, you know, from a p- point of identity, I think 
we'll not really understand how Brexit is going to affect a density of people in the north until we have more clarity on what exactly Brexit is going to look like, in my opinion. Because as we've already seen ever since the referendum results were announced, there is a massive uptake in the amount of people in the north applying for Irish passports, as is their right under the Good Friday Agreement, of course. Yeah. But there's a massive uptake on people who didn't feel any affiliation um, to Ireland before then, but then were applying. Which which, include, which includes Mike Nesbitt, actually. He was, Mike Nesbitt was speaking <laughs> in Dublin and he said... Um, I think, I'm not sure if it's 80 euro for a passport and he said it had already cost him 160 euros. He'd offered to buy it for two of his sons. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously I, a UUP, unionist politician who... Yeah, former leader of the party, no less. Yeah. Um, but I suppose it's also interesting, Ursula, um, that you say that, you know, people who wouldn't have had an interest in, you know, life down south otherwise, you know, down in Dublin or in, in the Republic of Ireland. Because, you know, I've been speaking to, you know, a few people in who, you know wouldn't by any stretch of the imagination be Republicans or nationalists and would probably vote or you know uh, for the Alliance Party. And even there, in their own words, you know, kind of pretty sick of the way in which they think Northern Ireland um, or the DUP are trying to represent Northern Ireland within the Brexit talks. And now mm. they wouldn't have much sympathy for Sinn Féin or maybe even the SDLP. But these are the sort of people that ultimately, when you're talking about in within our lifetime, or political lifetime, as every Irish politician likes to say, you know, are necessary for United Ireland. I suppose that's my next question. Do you think United Ireland has become more of a reality now? Is it more on the horizon than it was prior to the referendum? I definitely think that Brexit has, because it has moved up the debate, it has moved up in ways the inevitability of it because of so much discussion happening around the border and what the border actually means and what the re-establishment of some kind of presence at the border could actually mean for people's lives here because our generation has grown up without any kind of infrastructure being at the border. We've grown up um, without that and become used to that and have lived our lives that way and I do think that in many people's minds it no longer exists um, in, in any meaningful way which means that if it was to be re-established and if it was to start to have a meaningful and detrimental impact on people's personal lives and their businesses and any plans they want to make and the way they can live their lives, then I do think that that will really, really end the discussion around what the border means, why it's there, why it's unsustainable on such a small island and why ultimately it needs to be removed. So I do not think that anybody who um, was pro-Brexit at the beginning of this campaign envisaged that, but I think that was more to do with ignorance of the actual reality of border life and living in this region, rather than um, not thinking that it could actually turn out to be. I don't think they've thought about it at all. They still haven't addressed the question of citizens entering their borders, or citizens from the EU entering, um, you know, England or Scotland or Wales from the north, um, if there was no kind of presence there. Because if there is to be free movement, north and south, that is, say, if it's going to be one of their unimagined as yet technologies is going to <laughs> monitor trading north and south say if that you know did miraculously fall from the sky that still doesn't fix the issue that there would be inevitably people entering the republic um as eu citizens as is their right and able to travel to the north and then have access to the uk because of that so although there's so much conversation around what it means for business i still they still haven't addressed one of their main reasons for wanting to leave the EU in the first place, which is how they would prevent uh, migration into the UK um, without putting up physical borders. 
Yeah, I mean, and I suppose, I mean, the common travel area would mean that obviously citizens of Ireland, Northern Ireland and uh, the United Kingdom could travel freely. But I suppose what you're saying there is if you had EU citizens coming through Ireland almost as a portal into the UK, is that... It is, absolutely. And although, you know, they said time and again that the common travel area predates the EU and there's no reason why it shouldn't continue, the EU changed everything. Because although the common travel area within the EU was one thing, it still meant that the borders right around Ireland have now changed and are more porous and people from the rest of the EU can go into the Republic that way. And as long as that remains open, and it will remain open because there is no indication from any source that, that there's going to be any change in that, which would be ridiculous. But um, there is no way that the common travel area could continue in the same way that it has done hmm. since 1972 yeah. without addressing that question. And I don't think that's actually come up in the discussions, much in the same way that the question of the border never came up during the referendum in any great way. As you know, Northern Ireland hasn't had a government for the last, what, 15 months now? Um, About that. It started off with cash rash and, uh, you know, uh, nearly a bog standard political scandal. Um, but now it's basically been held up over the Irish Language Act. Um, why is, you're an Irish language activist, you've been campaigning heavily on this. Why is it such a big deal for for your community? And indeed, why is Sinn Féin using it, one could argue, to hold up, to, to hold up talks and the restoration of government uh, or the executive in Northern Ireland? First of all, I just love that phrase, bog standard political scandal. Like we've had that many of them in the north. Like it's just like, oh, there's another one that's a few more billion gone. But um, well, yeah, you know, the Irish language has become central to the discussions that have taken place. And although there's other issues that are still being discussed, I, th- I think that the importance of this issue is that it shows that the DUP are unwilling to share power. They're unwilling to recognise that there are those in the institutions and in the six counties that disagree with them and that there are those of a different identity. They refuse through the denial of the Irish Language Act, but also through the attacks on the Irish language community over the past number of years, which have been ongoing. Could you could you give us some could you give us some examples of those attacks, Ursula? Okay, maybe the most common touted example these days is the LIFA scheme, um, yes. where fifty thousand pound uh guilt tax Bursary fund was um, removed two days before Christmas from, and was set aside for disadvantaged school children. So, you know, that was just more a sickening dig rather than any kind of systematic bias. But more to the point, the Irish Language Act was agreed in the St Andrews Agreement in 2006. The recognition of the Irish language was agreed in the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. So that's decades that we have been waiting to actually have our rights recognised. And international best practice shows that there should be legislation, bespoke legislation for the Irish language, which protects the rights of the Irish language community here. And that has been ignored time and again. The last report that COMEX, that's the European Council Committee of Language Experts from United Languages, they weren't even able to report on the Irish language because the Assembly doesn't even provide them with information. So, Ursula, that point about the St Andrews Agreement and the Good Friday Agreement is very well made. But... Right. Well, well, hold on. Sorry, just just one slight thing. I mean, under the terms of the St. Andrews Agreement, the British government committed to introduce an Irish language act. And I think just to play devil's advocate here, the opposition, particularly among the UUP, is that they don't know what's in the act. And as you said, there's been multiple forms of it. Um, in terms yeah. of the cost, Nelson McCausen, now I don't know how accurate this is, but he's quoted 100 million a year. Um <laughs> For it now, I know. I mean, the other the other figures that are brought in is is, is Wales, 
um, which is 150 million a year. That they're big figures. Is that is that fair comment? Or- It'd be worth looking at Nelson's track record over the Irish language um, over the years, where he would put in five to ten questions on average each week, trying to um, challenge decisions that have been made in respect to the Irish language. That's what he spent his time doing as an MLA. But no, those figures are false. And the figures in Wales, they're based on a completely different um, system. Although we're looking for, and we believe that our rights would be best served by system modelled on the Welsh system, that does not mean that these costs are going to come in overnight. That's not how it would happen at all, um, because you're dealing with a different system. There are far more Welsh speakers than there are Irish speakers. There are the Welsh language services are more deeply ingrained within the system. If you were to begin that now in the north, it would be totally different. And if you said that the UEP have agreed to, or have have said that they do not know what would be in an act, there have been three consultations since 2007. And the most recent consultation that was done in the third one, over 13,000 responses were received detailing what should be in an act. 13,000 responses were received detailing what should be in an Irish Language Act. But the thing is, they've rejected every single one of them out of hand and they've never made any suggestions. They've never had any proposals or any constructive criticism on proposals that have been put forward, which goes to show that it's not that they won't agree to a particular Irish Language Act. They won't agree to any. And they say time and again that in spite of... The UP has said time and again that in spite of international recommendations coming from the Council of Europe and from the UN that language legislation is needed. They keep saying that they haven't been convinced. So Ursula, we started off this part of the conversation saying hasn't been a government in 15 months. Brexit is like, it's not even the elephant in the room. Like it's literally, it could have like an incredibly damning effect economically on Northern Ireland. Is this not a small hill to die on given to get a government up and running? Or do you think Mary Lou MacDonald, um, and Arlene uh, Foster going over to Brussels is sufficient for Northern Ireland to be looked after in any Brexit negotiations. The unionists are arguing that, and they're trying to argue that it's Sinn Féin that's in some way holding this up. But 50 out of the 90 MLAs that have been elected to the Assembly that haven't sat yet, but they're elected to the Assembly, they all support it. So it's a minority of elected representatives that are holding up an Irish Language Act. And the point is as well, this is a question of rights. This is a question of recognition for a community. And this is a question that needs to be answered. We're 20 years waiting for an answer to this question, which they have not brought forward. So I don't know what good it would be to go back to the devolved institutions if it was going to be exactly the same as it was before, where no decisions were made, where nothing was forthcoming and where rights were recognised. So, so, so you're, you're happy to sit it out and sweat it out of the DUP in effect, even in light of Brexit? The Irish language community is very clear on what it wants. We want the same things now as we wanted before the talks broke down and when St Andrew's Agreement happened. We want the same things. We want recognition for our place in the community as other minoritised languages across the world have gotten. And I don't think that's unusual and I don't think that's out of place and it's definitely not unreasonable. And if the DUP are putting it forward as though it's the recognition of rights for a minority in the community that are stopping them getting into government again, well, then they need to justify that position because it's their refusal to recognise rights that is holding up the institutions, nothing else. It's interesting you mentioned you mentioned minority there um, and you also mentioned, I suppose, the um, what seems quite a petty spite by Paul Given, who, who ironically, given his name, took... Um, <laughs> oh, sorry, apologies for that. <laughs> These sorry. are the terrible jokes we have to live with, Ursula, on this podcast. Oh, God. <laughs> so, Sophie Long had a very interesting way of, of phrasing it and it's um, equality through loss. Um, we've... 
heard a lot about demographic change in um, Northern Ireland. And I suppose the last election up there showed Sinn Féin's strength and I suppose the nationalist community's strength. In terms of Brian's question of is this worth dying for, is it a question of maybe waiting? We've been waiting a long time. We've been waiting a very long time. And I don't think we should have to wait anymore. And it's also worth pointing out and when questions like this come up, should we not just wait? The first Gale Tax um, area or was set up, or the first Bunskull was set up by people who had formed their own many Gale Tax on the Shaws Road in West Belfast in the late 60s, early 70s. The Irish language movement has been growing rapidly in the North ever since then. But the reason the Irish language was so weak in the North to begin with was because of actions by the Orange State from the 1920s onwards. And that cannot be ignored. It's not as though these rights... Um, are something that we've decided all of a sudden that we would like to enjoy. There's something that people have been fighting off, fighting for for many, many years. So waiting's not an option. We've been waiting for years. And as an activist for the Irish language community, do you feel you're being used or the language has been politicised? Because that's certainly one criticism that the DUP have accused um, others of and others have accused the DUP of politicising the language. Is that something you feel? I think it, I will definitely say that it is surprising that the Irish language is front and centre in the political discussions in the way that it is. But to talk about politicising the language is a very interesting question because I do not know how one political party, which is actually one of four political parties in the Assembly, supporting a cause is politicisation of it. I, I I don't actually understand. I've never understood that argument because what they are doing is what people cry out for political parties to do. They've listened to the communities. They've listened to the community, the Irish language community, which is very active and very organised and clear about what it wants. We went to politicians and said, this is what the Irish language community needs. And politicians listened and are now acting on that. So if they, you know, if they're fighting for what their community is saying they want, is that politicising the question? Or is it the people who are refusing to recognise rights because they don't want their political opponents to have any success? Is that politicisation? Uh, okay, well, I think on that basis, we've got a good sense of why uh, we are where we are um, up north. Um, Ursula, thank you very much for coming on uh, our podcast. It's very much appreciated. I think you give a really Thanks good really good insight that maybe perhaps isn't heard a huge amount um, down in the free state. <laughs> so that's all for this week, folks. Um, a really good conversation, especially in the second half of the the show there I think um, as ever if you want to get in contact um, just give us an email at paddywantstoknowbrexit at gmail.com uh, that's all for now folks bye bye Sloan.